0: Welcome to episode 12 of The Wizard Files, the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. This time around, we are thrilled to have joining us a man who was literally there for ground zero of the Wizard story and experienced all the eras of the Guide to Comics from a very unique perspective. So it is our pleasure to welcome to the show, Brian Cunningham. Brian, how are you? Hey, how you doing? Great. I know this is not a common occurrence for you to step in front of the mic and look back in time, so we're very excited to have you here. And I know your former co-workers and our listeners are excited to know what you know. But we always like to go back to the beginning. So we want to know, how did comics enter your life, and what is your origin story i'd say
1: i got into comics through other media through the adam west batman tv show super friends mego action figures all of those Things kind of directed me to comics because uh, I, I learned you could actually see more of these characters' adventures in the comic books and that they came from the comic books. Also, one of my older cousins gave me, uh, out of the kindness of his heart, my cousin Eddie gave me a copy of a book called The Great Comic Book Heroes by Jules Pfeiffer, and it reprints a lot of classic Golden Age stories in color with annotations by Jules, and a lot of that stuff just blew me away. I still have the book. I I always look back on it with fondness, and and it really just set me down a path. And, you know, that eventually led to, you know, a a lifelong obsession with comics.
0: Were there particular books in those early days that were the ones that grabbed you the most?
1: Uh, Believe it or not, the book that got me collecting full-time
0: was ghost rider
1: wow and i'm talking about the johnny blaze the original series that was the one that got me hooked because i had a schoolmate who would talk about this character uh called ghost rider and he you know had a flaming skull and he rode a fiery motorcycle and you know i was in fifth grade that there's nothing cooler in the world than a flaming skull guy riding a flaming motorcycle so i i wanted to check this out which i did and it just kind of opened my eyes to a shared universe where these other marvel characters uh, also existed in this world and i just i bought more i i just kind of experimented buying more and more buying avengers and uh, amazing spider-man defenders You name it, I gave it a try within my means, which was not much at that point in time. But Ghost Rider was it.
0: That's fascinating. So as you started amassing this collection, gaining this knowledge about comics, where were you getting your comics? Were there comic book stores that you were frequenting a lot? Was it mostly on newsstands? It was mostly newsstand. We had one comic book store
1: in our county that i was aware of it was a distance from my home and i didn't get there very often so it was mostly newsstand and that was fine i knew exactly what day the comics came and they racked them and you know you get to know week to week what books are going to be coming out when and you know you're always disappointed in that fifth week month that you didn't realize we had five you know thursdays (laughs) whatever. So, you know, nothing, nothing showed up and uh, you curse the skies. Uh, (laughs) I was merely a customer at the wizard comic book store who frequented it a lot. A friend of mine discovered this new store that had opened up when we were both in high school and uh, suggested you know, we should check it out. So we did and we, we really liked it. And it was it was called the, the Wizard of Cards uh, and they sold Kahama books. And I got to know the store manager, who was Pat McCallum. And Pat would turn my attention to books that I might not have been reading or things that got him excited about the business and what, you know, stories, characters, what have you. And we discovered that our, our tastes overlapped. Quite a bit. So when the store decided it was going to start a newsletter, Pat had asked me if I wanted to contribute a column, opinion column, and I said, "Well, sure," because I had nothing better to do and it sounded like fun. So I think they put out maybe two or three newsletters. I had a brief column in I think all three of them, and then Pat just turns around one time. And I'm in the store, and he's like, "Hey, we're going to get rid of the newsletter, but we're going to launch a magazine." <laughs> I'm thinking. What? (laughs) That's quite a step up from a newsletter. Yeah so I said sure what do you want to do with this magazine he's like well we're we're doing a price guy but it's going to have an editorial component and you know would you be interested in writing a, a toy column because I, I bought a lot of toys at that store at the time I wouldn't say I was the foremost expert in toys but I, I was sure eager to learn more about that element of the business and, and I did in very short time and I had really good contacts that helped me like uh, like Sean Oni you know people like that Sean owns I think it was splash page comics and having that kind of support system was great and it was it was fun it was you know paid 25 dollars a column <laughs> I would write i, I would handwrite write all the columns on a legal pad and and send it in and doug goldstein who was also kind of a, a founding member of the wizard crew he would take that and and transcribe it <laughs>
0: That is fascinating. It sounds like a lot of people that did start the magazine were working there at one point, but a lot of you were actually just customers and people who were associated. So I'm curious during that time, were Garab or Steven Seamus, like were they in the scene or was it mostly just you knowing Pat? Did they work the store as well as having their, their mom own it? Stephen worked in the store.
1: He handled mostly the card element of it. I think that was mostly his focus and his area of interest and passion lied within the cards. Which at the time was was a big business. And any interaction I had with Garab was was not it wasn't very direct. It was uh, mostly through Pat. Pat did most of the dealings with, with Garab directly.
0: Well, see, now that's fascinating to me because, you know, in all the interviews that we've done, I mean, Garib has been this mysterious figure, and in a lot of ways, it almost sounds like he was also just this figurehead. So I'm curious to know, like, when you first had to really deal directly with Garib Sheamus, there is now a magazine that exists, because you weren't in issue one, you didn't have your column, but by issue two, there you are, toying around with Brian Cunningham. So what led to kind of the official growth, you know, you said you're setting in the legal pages and get them typed up but when did it come together as an office as a place like okay now we're an editorial team
1: that's kind of funny because it was it really operated out of garab's parents house i would say for the at least the first year year and a half it was really a a small operation and <laughs> I mean when I I would visit the house early on a couple times either to drop off a column or or whatever and the production was done by paste up it was very old school in in terms of putting the magazine together you know photographs were were in black and white and half toned and all the old ways of doing things quark express wasn't really something that we utilized to make the magazine at that point when that and then quark eventually became the program we used and we definitely
0: elevated the quality a lot (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There's a major evolution those first two, three years. Yeah.
1: When we hired designers like Brad Fountain and Matt Tierney, they brought with them knowledge and experience working on other print publications. And I think Mike Zinser also, who was kind of put in charge of the the day-to-day of just the business. And I I, I think between all of them, they injected a lot more of a modern or at least then modern publishing operation.
0: Now, I'm curious, We you talk about that first year and the way Pat has told the story in retrospectives that were printed in the magazine is that really by issue nine you guys weren't doing that well it was looking like it was gonna go under that all of a sudden you get this lifefeld shafted cable on the cover for issue number 10 and then now sales are exploding and from that point on you never looked back is that your recollection as well did you feel like at a certain point in that first year it's like well this isn't gonna last
1: yeah like anything I mean it's- it just seemed like a it was just one of those dreams and I can only speak from my experience, but my experience was, hey, we're gonna make a magazine and it just seemed like this homemade slapdash thing that that somebody was trying to do, you know, after they graduated college. And I wondered if this was gonna last. That I didn't I really didn't have much of a Imagination in terms of how popular or not popular this was going to be. I, I just thought it was going to be a, a lark. You know, we do this for a little bit and then I'd figure something else out. You know, I it certainly wasn't intending to be a day job or anything like that at that point in my life. Uh, I was still going to college and trying to figure out what I was going to do. And once Image came about, it really shook the business. In a, in a, I mean, I, I don't need to tell anybody this. Anybody who knows comic book history knows that it just, it just shook the business and. And it brought a massive wave of excitement in terms of getting in on the ground floor, and none of that had been done by that point. All the you know all the top artist names leaving the the cushy confines of Marvel to launch their own imprint and create their own characters. You know, and and they gave us really unique access at that time. And uh, you know, we put the characters on the cover, and, and 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 I say we. It's I wasn't really involved in the day to day making at all at that point so this is just my recollection as kind of a bystander of how the things went Mm -hmm. but it was was a crazy time
0: yeah now so speaking of which like you say at this time still your main gig is the toying around column that really became your claim to fame you know i've mentioned this as we were preparing for this interview that was my favorite part of the magazine that's what i opened up first (laughs) (laughs) what's what's brian saying this month what toys is he going to show me it was interesting though because even in those early days you had people like x-men Artist Dave Cockrum was writing in to complain about the lackluster Toy Biz Storm figure. There were action figure sculptors giving you the inside scoop on unproduced toys or what it takes to get that stuff done. So, do you have a favorite memory of, of running that feature for as long as you did?
1: Well, <laughs> thank you for saying that. I mean, it, it, it's gratifying to, to know that anybody was reading those things uh, because you know, i certainly, I just did what I thought was fun. I, I don't know. Every column was like the Wild West. It's like. Well, well, what are we going to do this month? And I talk to Pat sometimes. And he'd be like, "What about this?" I'm like, "Yeah, that sounds fun." You know, when Dave Cockrum wrote in about the storm figure. Oh, that was incredible! I, at first, I'm wondering, is this a gag? Is this real? And then, you know, it, it, it turned out to be his actual address and and, uh, and his signature. It was it was amazing. I couldn't believe it. That, that was fun.
0: And and I'll mention, you know, one of the appealing things is, you know, in the early days of the magazine, as much as it was different than comic book buyers, Comics Journal, you know, all these other publications, you know, the thing that stood out, obviously, with Wizard was the opinions, was, you know, kind of the younger, fresher attitude. And that kind of didn't show up until later on. But your column at the beginning, because there was a face there, your college photo or whatever that was. Such a
1: bad photo. (laughs)
0: and i know you got reamed for that you mentioned that in some of the columns but that but that was like the thing where it, it really did feel like a guy like us writing to us and talking it, a lot of times yeah you would just throw in like opinions or stories you know sometimes it'd just be I, I remember i think there was like a two or three issue run where you're just talking about star wars it's like i collected star wars toys and here's how it went you know and so it's like kind of fun to, to get inside before we knew all the characters and faces behind the scenes at wizard you were one of the premier people, so it was a good entry point.
1: Well, we really
0: had no idea
1: what we were doing, in, in many ways. We we were just making it up as we went along, doing it the way I think we felt, that that just felt right, and it felt more like fans actually conversed with each other and and how we converse with ourselves uh, just in the store. And the amazing thing about Pat is he was still managing the store by day. And I think going over to Garib's house at night and, and working on the magazine and, I don't know if he got any sleep for the first year. <laughs> I think eventually he left the store to focus more on the magazine, and it's good that he did. It's really incredible how this magazine actually became something of of value to people it's 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 really funny to me, and it blows my mind that the things that we would do on a whim that some people will bring up years later even nowadays they'll bring it up like you're bringing up stuff in in columns i i probably haven't read since i wrote them and certainly never in my wildest imagination would would ever think anything like that would have happened as i was writing these things uh that's that's the kind of incredible thing about all this the fact that you're you're interviewing me about this stuff that happened 30
0: years ago is crazy it's just crazy to me um, now this is interesting because you're talking about you know you're, you guys are kind of flying by the seat of your pants it's just like it ultimately yes it's a price guy, but it's a fanzine you know it's you guys just being fans writing but one figure from the early days of Wizard that no one really ever seems to talk about and maybe it was somebody who was coming into it with maybe a little bit more of a professional sheen was the original editor Patrick Daniel O'Neill now in the in the early issues he famously had debates with Rob Liefeld you know he seemed to be part of this old guard of comics readers, you know, they were openly criticizing these hot new creators of the early 90s. So I'm very curious, uh, what can you tell us about his influence on the magazine at that time, if any? You know, he was there for, you know, the first two and a half, you know, three years, and then he kind of made his exit. So I'm just curious, what what do you recall about him? Well, Pat McCallum,
1: unequivocally, was the heart and soul of the magazine. I mean, I think he, he directed basically what the magazine really was at its core. And what Pat O'Neill brought to the mix was a pedigree. Pat O'Neill, he'd been published in other fanzines. He's done had done a ton of interviews, was very active in the CompuServe community. He had a lot of contacts. He just brought a, a level of experience that we... As a you know, I say we. I was not even on the staff at that point, but the magazine didn't have at that point. And Pat O'Neill brought that early on. But I think as the magazine matured, (laughs) and I say that very loosely, (laughs) you know, we kind of found a, a voice, and and I think the direction that the magazine was going in ultimately wasn't one that I think Pat O'Neill wanted to take it in. That's just my recollection uh, of it. I I, I could be wrong, uh, but I think that that was what happened. And I think, the magazine and and pat o'neill park ways
0: so as it started to become more of an influential magazine you know for you like you said you maybe you weren't officially on staff but at some point they had to bring you in they actually got an office it actually became you know a full operation so when did you start to realize that wizard had a major readership had influence in the comic book industry
1: Hmm. well i came aboard as an intern i interned there uh, in my senior college uh, and my intention was to be a designer now unfortunately because our design department relied entirely on macintosh computer knowledge and quark express and i graduated with an art degree with the full intention of trying to draw comic books but when i interned at wizard i did a little design work but mostly the pat knew i could write at least was somebody he can lean on to do stuff So he just kept giving me more and more assignments, you know, writing news stories and doing interviews. And at that point in time, my first day was uh, January 25th, 1993. 3 and we were working on The Death of Superman special and they needed a lot of content for it and and I I would be in school all day and then when I was done, my classes were done I'd go over to the office and and write until I don't know 2 in the morning and then go home and and repeat in the morning so it was a crazy time but it was fun and it was something that you know i I never thought i'd be doing research on all of the different colored kryptonites All that stuff was was a blast. And then once we did the Max number one half, I believe it was issue number 21. And I think it was the, it was probably the single best-selling issue we had done at that point. And, and actually probably for several years to come, I think it was the number one book that we had done. And the sales of that one half issue for the Max was through the roof. And I knew this because... We had a relatively small warehouse uh, connected to this, this office building that we had moved, mm-hmm. and I would say we, had, we hired about 10 to 12 people just to work in the warehouse to fulfill orders for this one half. And that happened closer to the summertime, I guess, of 90, 1993, but I knew right then and there, I'm like, whoa. This is a much bigger deal than I ever thought it would be, and I thought I think at that point in time I thought okay well maybe this is going to stick around for a little while, and when when they offered me a full time position as news editor. When I, right after I graduated college in May, I, I pretty much did a ton of stuff. I mean, I wrote the news section. I, I was the first librarian, kind of organizing all of the comic books that we had in long boxes. And then, thankfully, we hired Dan Riley, who came in and, and did it way better than I ever could. Yeah, and we were hiring more, more and more people. We hired Arlene So, who I think just, she just came out of high school to be a designer. Uh, we, oh, Mark, will was brought in as uh, an assistant editor or copy editor. I'm not not actually sure what all the titles were at that point in time, but it was really growing.
0: No, no. Were were you still going to comic book stores at this point? Like, if you walked into a comic book store and you saw Wizard on the stand, would you uh, get a little smirk and just kind of mention, like, yeah, you know, I write in there, uh, just (laughs) just so you know. Yeah. (laughs) No, I I'm
1: the opposite of that type, and my wife constantly makes fun of me whenever we go into a comic book store you know when i was at dc somebody would be talking about something happening uh with dc and you know my wife's like poking me like tell them tell them <laughs> tell them what's, tell them the truth i'm like no i am not going to do that i'm terrible because I, I don't play ball that way yeah <laughs> so I'm, i am no fun so.
0: Well, no, so this is interesting though because like you're saying you, you're hiring staff it's growing it's growing but for you as it's starting to get noticed and you're not taking advantage of the you know the wizard acclaim but what would you say was the biggest perk for you then as you started noticing wow you know like like we just have we have a lot of access to the top names or like what was it for you that was the most exciting thing about working at Wizard and being a part of that team?
1: Oh it was definitely having access to the big names at the time mostly because they would start picking up the phone when we called and it was great I got to talk to all of my comic book heroes with the sole exception I realized this week that the only guy, the only person I didn't talk to that I, I really, in hindsight, wished I did was Alan Moore. Never talked to Alan Moore. That was he was the only one I talked to. John Byrne, Frank Miller, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, you name it, Jerry Ordway, so many people I got to talk to, and Alan Moore for whatever reason, I I don't someone someone else was always on tap to talk
0: I mean I just wonder would you have been afraid He's, he seems like an intimidating figure <laughs> but if you decided to talk to him on the phone maybe less so yeah I mean
1: when you're talking to somebody who's clearly a lot smarter than you are it, it, it's, a, it's a real
0: challenge. <laughs> now speaking of you know kind of hobnobbing ultimately getting to know these creators again they're coming to you they want the coverage they want the exposure at a certain point we've talked about this uh, on our social media you guys got involved in a brand new comic convention in Philadelphia, called Comic Fest 93. And you indicated that you had run into a bit of a, a situation. In fact, in an issue of the magazine, you guys printed a formal apology to all those comic book professionals who attended. What can you tell us about what happened here? This damage control you had to run to calm the egos. And uh, what, what went on there with the souvenir program guide? Oh,
1: boy. The program guide was done by. By sub staff, I suppose you call it. not a sub staff, but like a lateral division, and the uh, the staff was kind of brought on just for that purpose. And for whatever reason, when listing the talent, the talent was listed in terms of like priority listings, like you know, you had your a literally your a tier, b tier, c tier, and the editors of this program didn't edit that part out. <laughs> They left it in. They left it in the program. So when we were at the convention, I noticed a bunch of talent. <laughs> and, and some of them took it, you know, tongue in cheek, but they would put by their name tag underneath their name, level A or level F. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it was. And I, I tried to hide my badge <laughs> at that point in time. Like walking around like, ah, oh, god, no. Those wizard guys, I can't believe it. And I'm like, I I know, I know. I, <laughs> I'm just trying to keep my head down and you know, not not call too much attention. But Comic Fest was amazing because that was the first big convention I had ever been to in Philadelphia and I'd been to like school gym small conventions and stuff, but this was massive. It was unbelievable. I mean, the Peter David, Todd McFarlane debate happened there. Yeah. And I got to see Harlan Ellison speak. I, I saw my first piece of original art, which was a thing that I didn't even know existed at the time. It never occurred to me that the stuff was actually drawn on a board that you could buy later on. Like I, I, It never, ever occurred to me. And Pat McCallum bought a piece of Arthur Adams art from his Creature from the Black Lagoon One shot he did for Dark Horse, and it was this amazing piece of art on paper, and that started a a lifelong obsession with original art for me. Well,
0: that's what I was going to say because, you know, I recall, you know, recently we we got access to this office tour video that you were featured in and were pretty hilarious uh, at your desk, you know, mugging for the camera. But we noticed that in your office space, there was a full wall of original art, and I believe somebody said that there was some Watchmen art in there and other things. So what what can you tell us? What what are some of your favorite pieces that you either had on display or you've been able to collect over the years?
1: Oh, boy. I had two Watchmen pages, one of which uh, I sold. I still have the other one and that's that's a prize possession uh micro wingo i'll have a, a piece of his uh, tim sale the staff gave me a, a tim sale commission of captain america years before he did that captain america book he he did this captain america in ink wash for me and it was it's it's amazing i also had uh, from the history of the dc universe they did a spread from uh, of the crisis on infinite earths
0: mm-hmm.
1: i had that spread I have since parted ways with, that was really cool. The thing is, I mean, back in the mid-90s, when I started buying original art, I mean, these things were a couple hundred dollars, and that was considered expensive, you know, like $200, $350. Like, that was, in, in my wallet, that was breaking the bank. Like, what are you doing? Are you going to have to eat saltine crackers for a week <laughs> buying this piece of art? But that was what it was at the time, and nowadays the, the art market is just Insane.
0: Now, I'm curious, you know, you said that, you know, Comic Fest was your first big convention, but obviously conventions became a huge part of the wizard business model. Uh, Like, do you have a favorite convention story or did you have a preference? Like, were you more involved and interested in the magazine side or were the conventions super exciting for you? Kind of where did you fall as that evolved? Uh, the magazine was still important to me.
1: The, the conventions were kind of a necessary evil in a way. I mean, I I like going to conventions, but when you go to so many, I get tired of them. Like if I sometimes I think if I never go to another convention in my life, I'll be okay with it. <laughs> but the Wizard Cons were fun. Basically, the company flew the entire staff to the Wizard World Chicago convention and all of us i mean we're all in a strange city and you know we're all together so it was a little bit more of a camaraderie thing one time our bus broke down on the new jersey turnpike getting to the airport to go to wizard world in chicago that was fun
0: <laughs> I have a question because you know, you're talking about the camaraderie so obviously you know in the pages of the magazine we're seeing you guys running this geek frat house as far as we know you know just the the wild adventures of the wizard staff so I'm curious is you know as far as shenanigans go what what type of uh, office pranks or things you recall and I actually have a question we polled some of our past interviewees your former co-workers that wanted some answers and if, <laughs> if Brian has the answers you know is he is he willing to break the silence and uh we, we've heard this story before but there was a board meeting up at the top of the offices at which point a dummy of a human being was thrown past the window and buddy scalera wants to know brian who threw the dummy off the roof
1: <laughs> well i was present in that conference room when that happened and i knew it was going to happen i was more interested in the reactions around the room for the people <laughs> who had no idea what was going to happen.
0: So, so who was present? Kind of set the stage. Who, who was there? Like, what, what was the, what was the atmosphere of this particular meeting? This meeting, it was, it was
1: called our management meeting, and it, it basically all of the senior managers of the company. I would say probably twenty people around a large conference room table with a large window at the far end of the of the conference room. Spanning the the length of the wall basically, and it's a it's a formal meeting Every, everyone goes around the table giving updates, making yourself sound important and it's a meeting I don't think a single person didn't dread going to because it just meant time away from you actually doing your job. It was Pat McCallum and Steve Blackwell. Pat made a dummy <laughs> made out of chicken wire and paper mache and dressed it up in clothes. <laughs> And then went to the roof, and I don't know if there was a signal. I can't remember how the timing of it worked, but the dummy just was thrown off the roof in front of the window. And and, uh,
0: and there was a scream like,
1: ah, someone just jumped off the roof.
0: And it was really absurd. We, we've been trying to get Steve on the podcast, and I'm assuming the fact that he was complicit in this is the reason he refuses to <laughs> to get on the mic. Uh,
1: well, it was a great prank. Uh, it was probably the best prank. Well, there's a few pranks that that rank real closely with that. There are a few pranks in my office that I confess at the time... I was I was not appreciative of mostly because we we're on deadline and I I'm I'm pretty focused on trying to meet the deadline and one time you know those red solo cups the Yeah. well they were filled with water and and put on the the entire floor of where the area where my office was. <laughs> So we, you couldn't get to the you couldn't get to your desk like without spilling these cups of water and and in certain cups it was uh, I think food coloring was put into it and it spelled out April Fools. <laughs> I don't know who it was but I think it probably came from Pat and and Matt Seinreich who uh, was always good for these kind of pranks. <laughs> Head pranksters, huh? Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, th- th- there was another prank where they wrapped, I don't think it was the Toy Fair office. They wrapped everything. I mean, and I mean everything in tinfoil. Every single, you'd open up your desk drawer and all the pencils, the erasers. <laughs> Everything would be wrapped in tinfoil. And then I think in a copy editor's office, they taped the heads of each of those editors on everything. Like their monitors, their staplers, their desks, their keyboards. Their faces were all over the place. And and <laughs> months later they were still finding their faces on things that they had no idea was still there. Oh, and the best part of that one was on the blinds, one of their giant heads was cut into strips and taped onto the blinds wow it was incredible
0: the forethought and the planning into these pranks that is amazing you mentioned the toy fair offices there brian and so this is uh interesting because obviously toy fair and maybe i'm incorrect on this but toy fair seemed like it became the second most popular publication produced by your offices and your know, anime insider inquest you know they had some good runs too but then there were other attempts to spit off magazines things like you know collector sports look and entertainment retailing and bean power and many more that didn't quite take off as heavily maybe those were you know just being discussed in the board meeting when the body was flying past the window so <laughs> i you know there's a distraction but i'm curious for you is there one of those magazines that maybe didn't make it that you had the fondest memories of or that maybe you were directly involved in trying to launch
1: Oh, boy. The the one I guess I have the fondest memory of it was a magazine we called In Power. The reason I recall it fondly is because that's where I ultimately met my wife. Oh. So
0: without In Power, I would not have met her. So there you oh, go. a love story. The power of love. The power of the
1: wizard. Yeah, there you go.
0: So I'm curious with that because this is actually not a magazine I'm familiar with in the list of Wizard publications. So what was that magazine about?
1: Well, it was a it was trying to capitalize on the youth culture at the time, which was you know uh, Beanie Babies and the growing anime market and manga, you know, Sailor Moon, Power Rangers. I mean, all the all the things happening, uh, Pokemon. It, it definitely skewed way younger than any of the other magazines... And it was a good magazine, it just never found its footing on the newsstand, which is where we needed it to to find its footing. You know, it, it's unfortunate. It, it was a good idea, it just didn't go anywhere.
0: Okay, wow, so yeah, that's actually a revelation for us, so that's pretty neat. You're going to have to track that down in Power Magazine.
1: I think oh, maybe a handful of issues came out, maybe. I, 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 it, it didn't last terribly long.
0: Now, you know, over the years, when you have that big a footprint in an industry, you, you become the subject of many criticisms. You know, there's always you know, the artificially inflating comic book values to sell at the family comic book store, burying certain publishers, which just never panned out. If a book was popular, it seemed to show up, you know? But what were some of, like, the wildest or weirdest controversies that you remember being associated with, Wizard, whether you were directly involved or people mentioned it to you? You know, the
1: the strangest one was probably when when frank miller was giving a, a a speech somewhere and he demonstrably ripped ripped in half an issue of wizard saying uh, i think you called it the devil yeah <laughs> Which, you know, it's totally his prerogative. That's how he felt at the time. I'm not going to argue with him. But that, that that I thought was odd. I mean, luckily, the magazine and Frank patched it up a few years later. Yeah, I mean, I think when the magazine launched Black Bull, that was a little strange, too. Like, we're doing a magazine about comics and trying to be impartial, and but we're also a publisher of comic books that we're told we need to cover. That was a weird blurring of the lines that I wasn't
0: terribly comfortable with. But that was the gig. So you're either on board or you're not. Yeah, we've definitely heard about that in the past, how certain publishers were like, well, as long as you're publishing your own comics, we can't talk to you. Yeah, that's wild. Now, one thing that I'm curious about, though, is obviously Wizard just grew and grew and grew in popularity. And a lot of times it got criticism for being, as you alluded to earlier, a little bit too immature. And yet that seemed to be part of the formula. So, you know, say like a decade in, did you guys have it down pretty clear? You're like, this is... The attitude this is how you lay out like would you, would you say there was a wizard formula that would pass through your mind as stuff was being published, and as your role editorially you know was growing? No, I don't think so at all. I think as the magazine evolved, the business evolved, the comics
1: evolved, the staff evolved, you know we had different points of view and personalities in in the mix in on staff that contributed to. The things that we did, I I don't, I mean, I think it's a disservice to, to them to say that there was a formula. I I think our, our instincts were to just kind of keep, keep the conversation going with what people were talking about. And I think if, if there was a, formula per se. It was really just keeping that as our North Star, just talk about the things that the fans were talking about. And in some cases, try to prognosticate what we think that the fan will like. And, you know, sometimes those things would would pan out and sometimes they wouldn't. I think we hit a lot more than we missed, but that was our guiding light to always remember who our audience is
0: obviously you know, we, we have a staple question we ask all our guests and you've mentioned before that you know pat was definitely the you know the heart and soul of what was going on there but as far as everybody reading the magazine knew we got this party guy named garab Sheamus heading up the magazine and so normally we ask garab Sheamus, cool or fool but i think for you we want to expand the inquiry to help us all understand what did garab actually do creatively for the magazine or was it all business and making connections and getting on to the next big project
1: you have to give Garrett credit for for coming up with the idea of doing a magazine first of all but also having the wherewithal to follow some of pat mccallum's lead creatively because i think a lot of pat's instincts really made the magazine what it is and, and what it became. And that was Garib. Garib gave Pat the opportunity to do that, but also had the the good sense of knowing when to back off and and let Pat take the reins of, of certain elements. I mean, Garib got involved in certain creative conversations, absolutely, as he should as, as the owner and publisher. But for the most part, it was based on my experience. Pat was really the driving force behind the magazine. And anything that I did in, in contribution to the magazine was pretty much in service of that vision that Pat had.
0: So now, as you said at the beginning, you didn't have that, that much interaction uh, with Garib. Did that grow over your full tenure there? Because were you there 15 years? How long were you there total?
1: <laughs> yeah, f- 15 years.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I would see Garab in the store every once in
1: a while. It's not like he was a recluse or anything, or that we avoided each other or anything like that. <laughs> It just, when it came to the magazine and, and. You know any any of the creative stuff i, I just mostly talked with pat
0: yeah that, i mean that that again that's just very interesting how that works out because again for us like we see like these people in the masthead and we're like okay well there's there's pat and there's brian and there's Garab and it just seems like you guys are the three musketeers or something so it's just interesting to understand kind of how and where he was you know as the magazine is getting done and the things he had to focus on and you know obviously you said you you loved comics you loved reading them uh and Steve Blackwell, who you mentioned earlier, he actually had a question for you. He just wanted to know how'd you get so damn sexy <laughs> but he also mentions Brian has an encyclopedic mind for comics and how to make them and he also does great caricatures and has been known to do some impressions now I'm not going to put you on the spot here unless you have a go-to impression I just want to understand what are these impressions he would refer to are you doing cartoon characters are you doing impressions of people in the comic book industry yeah I would just I would
1: call someone from another room and complain about coverage or something somebody wrote or somebody gained inappropriate access to uh, an event that they shouldn't have gone to (laughs) when of course they were totally everything was fine. I would pull at some of the strings and unravel certain things.
0: (laughs) Now we have had fun, tried to track down rare wizard swag you know like there's still some items we're looking out there for you know we've talked about the rings that were never produced apparently the pogs or gops as they were called that never made it to production except for one that came with issue 25 as far as we No, but there were like wizard sunglasses that were in uh, issue 29 and uh, so but i'm just curious for you can you recall any unique promotional items that you either held on to or just stood out in your memory the stuff i kept were the stuff that i, I thought was kind of cool like we produced dice
1: we, we did it for milk and cheese and for madman Oh yeah, those uh, those game boards. Yeah. Yeah, we did the game boards and and we included the dice, I believe, in the in the polybag. And that was cool. I still have those. Evan Dorkin was great with the Milk and Cheese element of that. We were all big fans of of both Madman and, and Milk and Cheese on staff in the earth let's see 93. We started to do these creator Uh, I think a Crater Spotlight trading cards that, I think they were Chromium or, no, no, there was a Spot Varnish on them and we did one with Matt Wagner and Grendel, we did jeff smith with bone we did one with i believe mike arwood and madman we did a whole bunch of these creator owned indie indie character cards that we had polybag but they didn't really prove to be that successful so we stopped which is a bummer because they they were really our our design i know one designer matt tierney really put his heart and soul into that because he loved that stuff so much and there was all original art. It was all done just for the cards, but for whatever reason, they didn't last that long.
0: Yeah, especially in the early days. I know that uh, you know those image cards. You know when you guys had like almost exclusively image characters that Polly bagged in. That was huge. Sold a lot more copies that way. I bet.
1: Yeah, I, that, I think that started the ball rolling on that stuff, and and I think that that allowed us to kind of expand the scope beyond just the the core image stuff so we were trying new things I and mean, we were just doing so many things off the cuff of things that we thought were cool and some of them did well and some of them didn't do as well.
0: Speaking of swag of the comic book variety one of the things that you guys got access to because it had to be covered in the magazine were some sculpture busts that you famously curated a gallery of Randy Bowen sculptures around your office area and almost everybody we've interviewed has mentioned that when they first arrived in the wizard offices seeing this beautiful tribute to the characters they loved how many of those did you end up being able to take with you when your tenure at wizard ended and then ben morse asks this if you could only pass one bow and bust onto your child which one would it be
1: I took them all. I took every one of them. They did belong to me. They were all purchased by me. Um, And the reason I did that was I'm kind of OCD about aesthetics. And, you know, I kind of wanted our our wizard bullpen to to look unique and interesting. And, you know, I I wanted the people that worked in the bullpen to be able to look around and see cool things. That was important to me to be able to do that. And, geez, Ben, what a question. (laughs) If I could pass on one Bowen bus, which one would it be? Ooh, that, that's a good question. Uh, it would probably be Taskmaster.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I don't think anybody saw that one coming. Any particular reason? Well, because a bird once flew through the wizard offices
1: and knocked into my Taskmaster minibus and dropped it on the floor and it shattered. <laughs> No way! Wow. Inexplicably, a bird flew into the office and knocked into everything, and one of them happened to be poor old Taskmaster. We had a raccoon sneak into the offices. We had a uh, lot of lot of kooky stuff.
0: And uh, you know, speaking of unwelcome visitors, Chris Ward wants to know, Brian, who was <laughs> the Phantom? <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> For
1: context, there was a bathroom adjacent to the warehouse in in the back. And one day, we come into the office, and that bathroom was just completely befouled. Somebody went into a, a, a poop rage, <laughs> and uh, and and smeared it all over the walls and uh, the the mirrors and the sink everywhere. It was it was everywhere. Needless to say, people who had to clean that up we're not happy but that's just it we don't know we don't to this day all we have are our suspicions there's no like security camera footage there's nothing (laughs) there's nothing that would indicate who this person could be it really is incredible that we're actually talking about this because the fact that this exists is 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 just completely absurd Back to Chris Ward, I do not know who that person is. And I would put it back to him. Does he know? I I wonder if he knows who that person is.
0: You know, Brian, you were known for portraying some characters in the magazine wearing some costumes. (laughs) Uh, What can you tell us about your costumed adventures in the office? Who are some of your favorite to play? Well, they had me be the Watcher once, um, which was insane. The giant
1: Owatu head was photoshopped. Uh, uh, upon me but they didn't have to do much photoshopping oh the, i was in a uh a, a fake ad for the gap with the fantastic four where uh matt sunreich was uh, was Mister fantastic chen santo pietro she was invisible woman i was the human torch and the late great Dan DiGiacomo was the thing. And and I have to say, I have to have to give a shout out to Dan O'Reilly, who I think he had a background in a lot of this stuff in terms of costuming and, and theatricality, in terms of making the the backdrops and and all that stuff. Dan was in charge of all of that, and that's something I think that not many people know, but uh, deserves a shout out because he he did so much. For all of those photo shoots and the Femetis, all those things to make them happen, Dan was a key guy behind the scenes to make sure that if it was supposed to look ridiculous, it looked ridiculously awesome. Dan deserves a shout out for that.
0: But, you know, here we are now, Brian, the 30th anniversary of Wizard Magazine this year. Wow. Yeah, I mean, can you believe it? So if you had to look back at either the greatest accomplishment of the magazine over its, you know, 20 years of publication, you know, or what would you hold up with pride and say, hey, either I was involved in that or I can't believe we accomplished this? I think the fact that you and I are actually talking about this, I'm completely
1: gobsmacked. The thing that that I look back on with with fondness is, I think once we started doing photography, like professional photography in the magazine um, and, and, and a lot of that, I think, is a, is a testament to uh, Joe Yanarella who came aboard in 94. He, he started with entertainment retailing and uh, eventually uh, jumped to Wizard. But he, he brought with him uh, contacts of photographers, and he had access to Hollywood writers, like real, actual professional writers who weren't just comic fan press writers. Joe deserves a lot of credit for, for kind of elevating the the slick quality of the of the magazine one of the photo shoots we did was with ron mars who we put him in front of a glowing green lantern and we put a mask on him do you remember that at I, all? I
0: do remember that one yeah i was just gonna say i was flipping through some issues the other day and found that i was like wow that's pretty cool looking
1: that was a fun shoot and that was all joe making that happen it was such a collaborative place i mean with pat and joe steve blackwell matt Tierney, brad fountain dan riley i mean there's so many people you know and, and eventually later on it became you know andy serwin mike cotton chris lawrence steve sunu ben morse i mean i, I can keep going justin jones so many talented people uh, who have come through that office and have gone on to much bigger and better things it's really amazing to me that i had an opportunity to, to work with all, all these people
0: so, Brian, Wizard's heyday obviously was the 90s, had a, had a good run in the early 2000s as well. But, you know, that was kind of true for the comic book industry in general, it seemed So what would you say, from your perspective, were some of the biggest shifts and trends you saw during your 15-year career?
1: The thing that stands out more most clearly is the shift uh, early on, the shift uh, in the business towards a more artist-centric business where the art, had more power on the pendulum you know which which led to big marvel number ones and then image and that lasted for most of the the decade then i think in the early 2000s that pendulum swing swung back the opposite direction and favored the writer more heavily and i think in in kind of the 20 years since the early 2000s we're only starting to see the pendulum kind of get closer to more of a balance, you know, only two years ago. It uh, actually probably still right now is you'll see press releases and uh, promotions for mostly writers and the artist, if they are mentioned at all, barely get a mention, you know, that, that was something that as an editor was, uh, was problematic to me because I, without the artist, there is no comic. So hopefully, That pendulum will strike a a balance back for the first time since probably the late 80s, which is probably the last time you, you really saw you know, a writer-artist team get the same weight as opposed to just the artist or just the writer.
0: I think it's interesting, you know, just to that point real quick, is, you know, obviously in the early days, yeah, like that was all the big talk is, is the artist more important than the writer? And yet it seemed like when the interviews were taking place, the actual creatives behind the scenes were saying, oh, no, no, I mean, it's it's a collaboration, it's a collaboration, it's just the artists that got more attention took advantage of the fact that they could uh, have that power to just push a little bit more of their ideas ultimately.
1: Well, the artist is kind of the arbiter of the story outside of the editor of the book. Yeah. So, I mean, really what the artist puts down on, on the page is how the story is told. Uh, so yeah, it's, 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 a visual medium. No, no doubt about it. The other thing was the emergence of what's now kind of pervasive is, is the superhero movie starting with the X-Men movie in 2000. And obviously it was a big deal, not only in the comics community, but you know, I think, you know, Hollywood itself actually, that's, you know, I, I don't think Hollywood even understood what what they had um i i think they thought well maybe maybe we'd make a movie and get some money out of it but it it started a revolution that was you know over the course of uh you know probably over the next decade in in the early 2000s to like 2010 where things started to really come together in in terms of the Marvel theatrical universe covering that stuff early on we had very polite meetings i remember going to 20th Century Fox's office in 1999 in, in preparation for coverage of the X-Men movie. Matt Sunreich and I went and got to meet with a, a, the PR person in charge of that particular film. They were very nice, very cordial, and gave us uh, access. But I don't think they understood at the time what they had. And then I think with the sequel, X2, our access tripled. <laughs> <laughs> So once X-Men came out, I think the studio started to wake up a little bit in terms of what the potential audience was and what they could do. And, and, the you know, the effects were getting much better exponentially year to year where they were able to, you know, do the Spider-Man movie and then more X-Men movies. And then Iron Man showed up and and – kind of reset the game so
0: 1991 to 2011 that's a pretty good run for any publication do you feel like the fact that the movies were now essentially promoting the source material on sub level did that contribute to wizard's longevity what other factors do you think were in there that allowed it to publish itself for 20 years well in in the
1: early 2000s i think print was still a viable source for information so you know the studios would provide us with exclusive photos and and whatever and i think people would still come to the magazine to see that sort of thing and also perspective that we were able to bring that the internet really didn't have an interest in doing and and still don't really i mean the internet mostly right now it's it's what's happening right now this second and and that's the one thing i think wizard did simply because we were monthly and we weren't going to break a lot of news because of that but what we did offer was perspective and you know doing things like group interviews Q&As with multiple sources together riffing off of each other we were able to do pieces on you know Bill Finger before it was hip to do that Steve Ditko you know creators that I think had a mystique about them we were able to do more with that Jack Cole we did a, a great feature on Jack Cole that I was really happy with. So, I mean, really perspective pieces were were something I, I felt that we did really well uh, by comparison to our competitors. To, to answer your question, the movie certainly gave us a boost in the early 2000s, no doubt about it. And I think as the Internet became more of a central source... Of information that wound down for for us a little bit
0: right and and it seemed like you know in trying to restructure the focus or whatever it was you know because obviously as the magazine is here now the 21st century you know like the first five six years pretty strong and then like you say the internet start to take over and i think a lot of readers remember that shift occurring with. The wizard content between the covers but also like the magazine dimensions got bigger and then the content yeah seemed to focus more on like the films based on comic book movies and then ultimately like really towards the end it was just general entertainment news you know like another version of entertainment weekly or something like that so what do you recall about the editorial decisions to push towards that change
1: well at the time when that happened we had just hired a new editor-in-chief, Scott Gramling, who was a member of the Wizard family back in the mid-'90s. Uh, he had come to Wizard as a managing editor after being managing editor of Collector Sports Look, and then when that magazine uh, ceased publishing, he joined Wizard for a few years, and then he made the jump to, I think it was Sports Illustrated for Kid, then he edited FHM magazine, and then when... We hired him back as editor in chief. I think one of his priorities was making the magazine a little more pop culture focused. And I think another thing was trying to make the magazine feel more like like a mainstream magazine, and I think that contributed to the dimensions getting larger uh, into traditional magazine-style dimensions. It's it's a double-edged sword, because on one hand, it's change, and change is, you know, sometimes never easy, especially when you're used to a certain way of doing things. But the larger dimensions also allowed for us to put more on the page. I'm pretty sure the designers were, were happy having that kind of real estate to play with versus the smaller dimensions of the comic book size magazine and we were able to do a little bit more splashier graphics and photography things like that but the jury's out i can only say it was interesting change and it, it's one that i wasn't apprehensive about it i was a little concerned because i was just so used to being comic book sized and being so comic book centric but making the shift to more pop culture made more sense in the grand scheme of things in terms of just the, the magazine survival. magazine's in 2007, 2008.
0: Obviously, you know, when you're talking about Scott coming in as editor-in-chief, that means Pat McCallum then had to make an exit. So when that occurred, and obviously he has been, you know, like everybody who we've interviewed and, and you yourself have said, you know, he was the one really with the traditional vision that Wizard had had all this time and the attitude and all those things. Now, we got ourselves in some hot water with Rob Liefeld early in the podcast where he, you know, blocked us and got angry at us because he obviously has his opinions about wizard and specifically it was because he had called out you and pat a bunch of other you know senior staff members as having run the magazine into the ground and we pointed out the fact that well no 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 they were asked to leave and then there were several more years of the wizard being run into the ground by people who were not involved you know for all the years that actually was successful so i so i guess the the question i have is like when pat left did that really just for you signal kind of well this is the end
1: it was a blow for sure i mean it was a shock frankly that day happened and pat came downstairs and came over to me shook my hand said it's been a pleasure and uh, my jaws on the ground thinking what is going on here and i think i think a lot of us thought that this was it this was this was the end my main concern at this point was okay we're going to have to keep going from here we have work to do and we have salaries to pay and we're going to have to do our best without pat to keep things going as as best we can but certainly without pat it, you lost a tremendously valuable perspective and presence that you can't really replace that to try as i might to you know try to stabilize the place it, you know that that was really hard to do
0: and do you feel like was he being asked to leave based on poor performance of the publication or just a decision by upper management hey we're just going in a new direction he's probably the highest paid person here and we're just doing it for business reasons
1: you'd, you'd have to ask the people involved right Right. Like, <laughs> My understanding is it was a management decision. Uh, It did not have to do with performance. That's my understanding of it. I could be wrong there, but Mm -hmm. that's that's what I I seem to recall. It was more just we're moving in a different direction.
0: You weren't too much longer for the company at that point. So what can you tell us about your final days with the company as well and kind of what your attempts to keep the attitude and the fun and whatever it was before as the changes are being made and what led to you ultimately uh, getting laid off yourself?
1: the year year and a half leading up to my my departure the the company was undergoing changes and people were being let go pretty regularly it's funny when pat left in 2006. One of the things I think that came about as a result of that, believe it or not, was we we kind of, at least I feel, that we came together as a group more than we ever had. And I think we realized that we're stronger if we stick together. And it was an interesting time in that we all just grew closer, I think, as as a result of that shared experience. But leading up to my exit, the writing was on the wall. I I knew it was a, a likelihood. It was more a matter of when than if but given that you know i still tried to do my best in the job i think the last big project that i had worked on was wizard number 200 i was asked to focus solely on that i think i took two months off three months off from editing the day-to-day of the main wizard in, in preparation for this anniversary issue and you know in hindsight to me it's my love letter to the magazine and to the business of comics during the time that wizard had existed and I really poured everything I had into that book. Uh, and it's actually, you know, I, I don't have a single issue of Wizard in my possession. Really? Set for issue two hundred. If for whatever reason two, I poured so much of my soul into making that the best possible version of of what that could have been, you know. And and that that was also capping off a redesign for the magazine. So there was a lot of emphasis and time put into making that feel fresh and different, but also you know reflect back on the previous 199 issue plus uh, all the specials and whatnot. So it was kind of a bittersweet thing after the fact.
0: Now, one now what, what fun fact about issue 200, I'm curious to know what involvement you had, if any, or what difference there was, if any, because there was, you know, the newsstand edition, then there was the platinum edition, there was the gold edition. <laughs> Do you recall that there was much of a difference other than uh, the cover design? <laughs> I don't remember there being any difference. Uh, <laughs> On the inside,
1: I, I really don't know. I I vaguely recall us milking the heck out of that with all <laughs> the different variant covers. But those aren't necessarily important to me, uh, but I guess, hey, if they if they allowed us to pay the bills for another few years, then uh, <laughs> great. But yeah, so 200 was kind of my swan song, although my last formal issue, I think, was issue 204, I think. You, you might have to look that one up. Yeah. I recall it being an Avengers cover. I think Mike Choi did that. And then in uh, in August, I was told my services are no longer needed. And it was weird because it was done by Scott Grambling and Joe Anarella, both of whom I'd, I'd known for a very long time. I think they felt worse about it than I did in, in the telling of it. But I, I appreciated that they tried to make an awkward exchange as good as possible, I guess. That was August, so I basically packed up all of my Bowen mini busts and statues and uh, <laughs> packed up the original art and took it all to a storage unit somewhere nearby.
0: And what did you imagine was your next step and how did your future career from that point then take shape? I think I was self-delusional. Are you familiar with that book called The Secret?
1: Yes, of course, yeah. Where you kind of will your your future into existence. Right. I kind of took that approach without actually buying into it, but I I felt that something was going to happen by sheer will. And, you know, in the end, probably a right place, right time kind of thing. But then Dan DiDio called me up saying... A couple editors have left, and, you know, maybe I could meet with Eddie Berganza, who at the time was the Green Lantern group editor. So I met with Eddie, and I took a test. Eddie
0: gave me a little test, which uh,
1: I guess I passed.
0: I mean, was that just trivia on the characters to see if you knew the books? (laughs) <laughs> it was a test I took home. There was one with a
1: script and the script was a like a short Superman script and it would occasionally have Superman doing un-Superman things that right away you kind of flag it and be like, "Hey, that this doesn't sound like Superman." That kind of stuff. Okay. And also a couple color printouts, costumes colored incorrectly. And I think the only thing I got wrong on the color which I remember to this day because it, it's actually stuck with me, was some character's eye color was I did not catch. Uh. It was, and for whatever reason, ever since that point in time, I've been a stickler for characters' eye colors. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to Eddie instilling that aspect of editing in my repertoire. But yeah, then at, my first day at DC was October, so you know I was only uh, out of work for a couple months. Once I joined DC, it was a whole different learning experience. It was amazing. Uh, Liz Gerline was the editor that I was paired up with in terms of teaching me the the ropes of how to actually edit a comic book. And she was phenomenal. Uh, Her and, and Rex Ogle. Rex was my first assistant. And they were both tremendous in helping me get my feet wet in comic book editing it was uh, it was great
0: and obviously you know you went on to do some pretty high profile books it all blurs together Aquaman
1: and Flash and Green Lantern it seems like I've had relationships with that book and those characters in and out of the tenure of DC I, I think I was editing them for a time then I wasn't for a time Then I'm back on them for a time Justice League I probably had the longest tenure on as the group editor of that book I edited just like 2011 to 2016 or 17. I, I can't remember.
0: Now, was there any stigma of coming from Wizard? Did you have fellow former co-workers from Wizard at DC in the offices with you at that time or over the years?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Ricky Purden, who's now at Marvel, he was already uh, at DC. Nachi Marsham, who's now the publisher of IDW. Uh, Nachi, he was one of the editors who left DC, I I believe, to join Disney Publishing at the time. And uh, that created an opening for me. In addition, to, I think Steve Wacker also left for Marvel to edit the Spider-Man books. So there are a lot of wizard people throughout the business right now. It's really awesome to see them flourish and
0: thrive. Now, did Pat end up there for a time as well? Oh, yeah.
1: Pat came aboard, I believe, in 2011, helping to shape the new 52. Yeah, and then Pat left to join the creative services department which was headquartered in, in Burbank and he was the video game liaison for DC and and then he came back to editorial several years later as executive editor for, for DC
0: so obviously you know all these years you said at the beginning of the interview your original intention you went to college for an art degree so you could get into drawing comics and doing all of that that all those years later after being an editor at a magazine you end up being an editor in comics so for you is is it something where everybody at you know a major publishers is it just is everybody's ultimately just a fan at heart is that the qualification it's not like you go to school to be a comic book editor so sometimes people <laughs> could be critical and say like well what does he know about making comics it's like well what did such and such person know about making comics before they became you know super popular you know it's just like everybody starts as a fan everybody learns everybody has a, a path that gets them there.
1: I think if you're a fan, it certainly doesn't hurt. But really, if, if, you, if you're going to work in comics, you kind of have to love it. If you're not going to love being involved in comics, then it's probably going to be a lot of work that you're really not interested in doing. You are juggling a lot of balls in the air when you're editing comics. If you're involved in any any facet of comics, I I think you have to love it. It's a great business. It's a great industry. It's a great field. I certainly never want to leave it.
0: Now, we've talked about this uh, off the air, and I guess we'll address it now, but recently Wizard World relaunched wizard magazine as something really ultimately it seems like these early issues at least are more of a promotional pamphlet for their conventions with some articles mixed into it but it's got the wizard logo on the front it's kind of got the format of the later era of the magazine so do you think in your mind because obviously wizard as an entity has been dormant for quite a while is there a format that wizard could return maybe in its former glory in today's marketplace do you think it'd be better as a website for news or like a YouTube channel, but with that same attitude? Or do you think it was just a moment in time that Wizard as it was really worked?
1: Well, I wish them all the best. I don't know if you can replicate what Wizard was in its time Um, I mean certainly print as a source of information was pretty much the only place you'd go Um, and and the internet was still kind of growing as a a print magazine I I don't know I don't know if there's a lot you can do with print with that kind of material right now the thing Wizard had that I think you know even with its imitators that couldn't replicate it was a certain point of view a certain attitude which you know you could love it or hate it but it was part of the dna of of the magazine unless you have those people i don't think you can really do that it's funny a couple of us were talking about this this new magazine venture and someone likened it to you know now we know what happens when sitcom stars see a reboot of their tv show happen (laughs) they're not part of it, you know. So it was was a funny analogy for me. It was great. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it made me laugh. I don't know if it's going to feel like Wizard. I mean, if people go into it thinking they're going to get something that they got 20 years ago, they're likely not going to get it.
0: For you, I mean, if you just had to relate a feeling or a word or just like the briefest description of to say, when I think of Wizard, this is how I feel. Or when I think of Wizard, this is what it means to me.
1: When I think of Wizard, it's certainly much more personal than than just the magazine. When I think of the magazine, I think of the first 15 years of my professional life where I, I learned so much from so many people i made a lot of mistakes i made all you know a, a lot of decent decisions a lot of things in you know in your growth trajectory it's kind of it's kind of incredible to me that it was only 15 years you know i guess 15 years is not a lot to sneeze at, but it felt like a chapter of my life that I'll treasure. I mean, it wasn't always rainbows and sunshine. We had arguments, we had disagreements, managerial decisions that weren't to my particular liking, or even managerial decisions of my own that in hindsight, I regret, but uh, or at least don't feel good about. I don't like to live with regrets, but otherwise... To me, you know, the fact that I I was paid to do that for 15 years is incredible. I never went into it thinking that it was going to be a a lifelong profession. So I'm I'm really kind of stunned that we are still talking about it. <laughs> 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 if there's anybody listening to this right now that is not a former co-worker who would be even remotely interested in in anything to do with Wizard Magazine it's still mind-boggling.
0: Yeah, well and I, and I will tell you Brian, yeah, you certainly made an impact on a lot of us. We very very much hold Wizard close to our hearts on a on a daily basis for some of us doing this podcast, but for the rest that we are able to share these stories with, they just the enthusiasm that comes through every time we just share a page from Wizard or a cover. People are like, "I had that. Oh, I read that." issue you so many times you know, like it really did stick with a lot of us in our formative years and even you know we've talked to comic book shop owners that were just like oh it was great it was such a breath of fresh air we loved having it in the store it brought so much more interest so i mean you guys definitely did a a great work at a great time when people were excited and only added to that enthusiasm for those of us that were either discovering comics or for those who maybe needed uh, a little push to say hey comics can be fun again you know you you guys definitely all together as that group as that that attitude that congealed so perfectly so we're grateful for the opportunity to celebrate it with you again we thank you so much for being a part of this and sharing your story and that and, uh, letting us in on some of those unanswered questions i appreciate it and uh, i hope there's some interest in in this thank you and once again thank you all for listening we really have enjoyed putting this series of interviews together it really was a pleasure having brian with us but the alumni keep on coming, as next time around, we have Doug Goldstein will be joining us, sharing his perspective, his stories, how Wizard entered his life and ultimately lodged him into a career on television with Robot Chicken and so much more. So we hope that you will be back to join us. Again, always an invitation. If you've been a little shy about getting on the mic, remember, this is about celebrating all that you did. Who doesn't love to talk about themselves? Some of you might. Might not, But we want to hear from you. Do it for us. Do it for the fans. This is the 30th anniversary of Wizard and your story deserves to be told. Also, if you're in communication with somebody who may not know about the show yet, who used to work at Wizard or one of the other publications, certainly send them our way. We would love to give them an invitation as well to join us. Now, for those of you who are enjoying all the Wizards content, whether it's on our YouTube channel at Wizards Podcast or on on Patreon, yes, patreon.com slash wizardscomics, where we have so much more content coming to you on a monthly basis, a bonus podcast series, 90s Super Cinema, where we choose one year of the 90s and select a comic book themed movie from that year that you, the listeners, vote on. We have some great in-depth discussions about these movies. Plus, this time around, we are going to talk about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film from 1990. You voted on it. Why not hop on over on Patreon, join the cool core, and, uh, hey, get yourself some bonus content in addition to videos. You can join and get FaceTime with the hosts of the Wizards Podcast. Yes, Steven, Michael, and myself have a geek group chat we hold monthly for our Big Cheese patrons. And, of course, you also get to select your own videos there. There's just so much that we want to do and bring to you, so we hope that you will join us. And don't forget to follow us at at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. And until next time, we're closing the files.
1: This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.